0: In John chapter four, Jesus describes the kind of worshipers the father seeks. Verses 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now for the next few minutes, stay tuned to worship in spirit and truth with Pastor Jeff Scoggins.
1: Two men, one a a defense attorney and the other a university professor of religion, were eyewitnesses to a fatal miscarriage of justice. An innocent man was sentenced to death and summarily executed. Two different men, one a prosecuting attorney and the other a pastor, had not been at the trial, but they had heard about it from eyewitnesses. And all four of the men were emotionally impacted by this event that had happened. And they went on to write about it. Four different accounts of the same incident. Well, and naturally, the defense attorney, and he hadn't been a defense attorney in the case, he had just observed the case, but the defense attorney, whose name was Matt, he naturally wrote in defense of the man who had died, who he believed was innocent. But not everyone believed that way. They, they, not everyone believed that the court had done wrong. And so this attorney presented evidence that he felt exonerated this innocent man. And he made a powerful case. Uh, he had known the man, and so he was motivated to make a powerful case. Well, the second person, Pastor, Pastor Mark, who had not seen the trial himself either, he felt compelled to learn everything he could about the case. He had heard of this man before. Apparently this had been a pretty famous man, quite a looked up to gentleman, a model citizen, a spiritual man, someone that a pastor could hold up before his congregation as a a model of a good Christian. Well, when Pastor Mark told his congregation about the incident and the man involved, no one at the time faulted him for having kind of a a different Way of telling the story than the prosecutor or the uh, defense attorney had done. He emphasized certain details that you know were important to his sermon. And also, since the pastor hadn't been there, the the people kind of cut him some slack when he quoted the man who had died a little bit differently than the de- defense attorney had or the others that wrote about him. Even if the word was the wording was slightly different, you know the the, the basic concept was the same. Well, the third man. A prosecuting attorney, whose name was Luke, approached the event in a very different way than the defense attorney had. Uh, He still defended the man who died, but in the way that a prosecuting attorney would do in such a case. When he wrote about this man who had died, he created a sketch of this man's life that, that showed the people who read about him what kind of man the world had lost that night he he convinced many people of this man's innocence simply by telling the stories of the the compassion that this man had on the hurting people around him and no one faulted him either for emphasizing those details that bolstered his case and leaving out those details that really didn't and again since he hadn't been there himself it was quite all right that his account sounded different than the others, simply because it came from a different point of view. The fourth person, a, a, a professor of religion, like I'd said, Professor John, being a scholar and on intimate terms with the man who had died, had been executed, he approached this incident in a literary fashion. And he really wrote this man from a common human being into someone completely out of this world. He really, he showed connections between this man and, and history and even the predictions of futurists. And no one, again, criticized him for leaving out some details and emphasizing others that made his point more clearly. After all, all four of these men, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had all seen, quote, this incident from a different point of view. They wrote about it for entirely different purposes, for entirely different audiences. And you've probably figured out by now that this is not a story about... A miscarriage of justice now, but one that happened 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. So now when people argue that the four New Testament Gospels can't be true because they, they're different, seems to me they're missing the point. Just as four p- different people would write four different accounts of any trial and not be lying, so would the Gospel writers' accounts be different. Each one saw this event in a different light at a different time from different angles for discussing with different people for different purposes of course their their accounts of the same incident are going to be different not only does this not hurt the credibility of the gospels in my view it supports them all the more but since we're reading in Luke right now like i mentioned uh, earlier we're reading through the bible and i've been preaching wherever we're at this year and we're now in Luke and since we're reading in Luke right now, I want us to look specifically at Luke's account of the life and death of Jesus. Luke wasn't even a Jew, did you know that? He was Syrian, from what I understand. He's the only Gentile to have written in the New Testament. And he wrote primarily to the Greeks. That was his target audience, writing to the Greeks. And one of the. He presented his case to the Greeks in a different way than, say, Matthew did because Matthew had written his gospel to the Jews. The Jews were concerned about things that pertaining to the Messiah. They were interested in prophecies that pointed to the Messiah. They were interested in the lineage that pointed back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. The Greeks though, they were they were interested in, in different things. One of the th- the Greeks thought in an entirely different way than the Hebrews did. And one of the ideals of the Greek people, you could see it all the way back to the the days of Aristotle. One of the ideals of the Greek people was what it meant to be the ideal man. Perfect in manliness. That was one of the things that they searched for. And so Luke sought to show them some aspects of Jesus that would appeal to that way of thinking that he endeavored to show them how Jesus was the ideal man, perfect in his manliness. And he was so because he was God who became a man. Luke made sure, first of all, that people understood that Jesus came from God. He he wanted to make that clear. And he did that by telling us stories like the events surrounding his birth or tracing his Lineage, not back just to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam, the son of no mother or father, but a son of God, so to speak. Then through his writings, Luke constantly reminds us of the divinity of Jesus, but he points us to Jesus' humanness, although that he was divine. Luke saw Jesus' divinity as the defense of his humanity. In other words, the very fact that God became a human and lived as a human, we know beyond a doubt how God would have us to live as humans, right? Because God himself lived that way. So Luke wanted us to believe that Jesus is God, but beyond that, he wanted to give us a picture of how Jesus lived as a human being so that we also can strive to be perfect in manliness or perfect in humanness ourselves. So as Luke presented this perfect man to his audience, he emphasized the things that made Jesus so different a man from other men. And one of the major differences that Luke calls our attention to, one of the major things that he wanted us to see in Jesus' life was his compassion for the hurting people around him. Luke emphasized that aspect of Jesus' life. Toward that end, Luke tells us a lot of details about the life of Jesus that nobody else tells. Luke is the only one who tells us about the shepherds coming to visit the baby in Bethlehem. He's the only one who tells us the scarce details that we have about Jesus' childhood. He's the only one that tells us the story about how Jesus went to the temple when he was 12 years old and the, the events that happened there. He's the only one that told us about how Jesus raised the dead son of the widow of Nain. Only Luke tells us that story. He's the only one that tells us the story about the Pharisee and the publican's prayers. Remember that story? He's the only one that tells us the prodigal son story, which we, taught, which we told the kids this morning. Luke's the only one that tells that story. He's the only one that tells the story of Zacchaeus. He's the only one that tells the story of the Good Samaritan. I'd hate to lose those stories, wouldn't you? He's the only one that tells us how Jesus wept over Jerusalem at his triumphal entry. He's the only one that paints the picture for us of Jesus sweating blood at Gethsemane. He's the only one who tells us about how he healed Malchus's ear. He's the only one who tells us how Jesus looked at Peter when he denied him the third time. He's the only one who tells us about the conversation with the thief on the cross. He's the only one who tells us about the walk to Emmaus after his his resurrection. Luke is the only one who tells us how Jesus blessed his disciples just before he ascended. Luke's the only one who tells us these stories. In fact, I'm really looking forward to talking to Jesus and his disciples someday, you know, because the fact is, is that most of the stories of Jesus' life were never written down. They're completely lost to us. And in in fact, the last verse in John says that if everything that Jesus had ever done was written down, there wouldn't be enough room in the whole world to contain the books. I'm looking forward to hearing some of those stories. But why did the other writers leave out those stories that Luke told? fact is they had to pick and choose from an awful lot didn't they and each one had a particular point to make different people to convince of different things their message was always jesus but they contextualized their message to fit the people they were talking to what does that tell you about the way that we should share jesus to the people around us there is no one-size-fits-all method of sharing the gospel, is there? Jesus Taylor made it to every person he talked to, so should we. Luke is a gospel written to us, sinners. Above all, in his life here on earth, Jesus first and foremost showed compassion to sinners and to suffering people physically. It seems to me that he showed his compassion even before he showed truth. Jesus understood that someone in pain or dealing with grief, the only thing that they could think about at that time was figuring out how to get through this painful time. The best way to open someone's heart to truth Jesus showed us is by first alleviating their suffering. And if alleviating their suffering isn't possible the next best thing is sharing in their suffering. Luke reveals to us a God who shares in our suffering. He sympathizes with us. He feels with us. He cries with us and for us. Well, one Sabbath, Jesus was teaching at one of the churches, synagogues, the Jews called them. And he ran into a woman there who had been sick for 18 years. This is in Luke 13, by the way. She may may have had some sort of osteoporosis or something because she was bent over. She couldn't straighten up. Now, Jesus had a bit of a situation here. He was surrounded by religious leaders. And this was the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders of the time. Had some very strict rules. About how to keep the Sabbath. About what you could and could not do. On the Sabbath day. And they weren't necessarily. Biblical rules that they were talking about here. They were rules of tradition. Not that there's anything wrong with tradition. That wasn't Jesus point was it. Well. Jesus knew that if he healed this lady on the Sabbath day, that this would turn the religious leaders against him. And, and I don't think Jesus wanted that. But when he looked at this poor lady who had been caught in the clutches of suffering for 18 long years, he couldn't stand to see her left in this, these chains for even one more moment, much less until the next day. So religious leaders or not, (laughs) this lady had to be healed. And so Jesus said to her the most beautiful word she could have heard at that moment. You know, when we see people in a state of suffering, it's pretty easy to theologize with them, isn't it? Well, you know, it was God's will. Jesus didn't say that to this lady, did he? He didn't say... Oh, it's God's will. You know, he didn't even say something nice like, God loves you. He didn't tell her about any, you know, you know, if you were living right. That was something that the leaders really loved to do. If you weren't such a sinner, you wouldn't be having this problem. Jesus said to her the most beautiful word she could have heard at that moment. You are set free from this disease. That was the most beautiful thing she could have heard at that moment. And then he touched her. He helped her to straighten up and she began praising God. And just as Jesus knew they would, the religious leader became indignant. Don't you just love the juxtaposition of those words, religious and angry? Don't you love that? Well, I mean, we can't fault it all the time. Jesus himself became angry sometimes. But he became angry in a, an entirely different sense of the word, didn't he? Jesus never became angry the way that these religious leaders did. To become angry that way requires a certain amount of self-righteousness and pride. Luke thirteen 14. Let's just read that real quick. Luke 13, beginning in, in verse 14 indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him. And I imagine here's where Jesus became angry. Yeah? The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his donkey or ox or donkey from the stall and then lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, this daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Jesus felt a deep passion for setting prisoners free. There is no greater thing to do, no greater honor that you can bring to God than to use the Sabbath day to set prisoners free free from what binds them. And what binds people? What binds people? Well, sickness does. Debt. That binds people, doesn't it? Anger binds people. Addictions bind people. Ignorance. You ever think of that? Ignorance binds people, doesn't it? Depression. Grief. Fear. Hunger. Guilt, all of these things bind people. If you truly want to minister the way Jesus did, find the chains that bind a person. We all have them and they're all different. Find the chains that bind a person and set them free. Find a way to set them free. And if not, if there's no way to do that, join them, be with them. When Jesus told us to set prisoners free, perhaps he included, you know, letting somebody out of jail, but I don't remember Jesus ever doing that. Do you? What Jesus meant when he said to set the prisoners free is to find the chains that bind him and set them free, let them go. Jesus got angry at those who would attempt to keep hurting people. <laughs> In their painful prisons of suffering for even one more minute. There is a lot that a Christian should not become angry over, right? You shouldn't become angry when somebody cuts you off on the road. That's not a Christian kind of anger. But there is a kind of anger that is very appropriate to the Christian. One kind of anger that is appropriate to the Christian. And that is anger over anything that would keep a child of God in bondage physically or spiritually, any longer in Satan's kingdom of suffering. We should become angry at whatever keeps people in those circumstances, angry enough to do something about it. There is one other kind of anger. And I almost hesitate to get into this one. But In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus (coughs) said something that I don't like. You ever run into things that Jesus says that you don't like? Shame. I mean, we should like them. I realize that. But he said this. Listen to this. 1426. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those are strong words, aren't they? Hate is a strong word. Like anger. They're two words that go well together. When you hate somebody, you're angry with them, right? Have you ever struggled with that verse? If you've read it before? I heard a Catholic teacher by the name of Pat Mullins tell a story that that brought home to me a little bit of what maybe Jesus meant when he Said what he said. People have tried to translate that. Well he didn't really mean hate. Or they've done a lot of things to this verse. To try and understand what Jesus meant. Well. Pat Mullins went to a retreat. In which the the meeting room was filled with ordained priests. Pat Mullins was just a lay minister. I say just. That's not hardly fair right. That's what he was feeling though. Somebody a volunteer from the congregation. He was not paid to do ministry. Well. Well. He came into this room full of ordained priests. And he says that he, when he came in, he was not at all humble. It's not that he was proud. It was that he was exactly the opposite. He felt self-conscious. Like he didn't deserve to be there. And he said, that's not humility. He says, people think that humility is degrading yourself. That's not humility, he said. Humility, true humility, is not thinking about yourself at all either in a positive or a negative way. True humility is not even considering yourself. So he came into this meeting, and he was not humble because he was feeling self-conscious. And he said as they were there together praying, he felt God impress him to say something to the group. And because of the way that he was feeling self-conscious, he said to God, No, I'm not going to do that. I don't even deserve to be here. This room is filled with ordained ministers, better men than I. Let one of them say it. And he struggled with God for several minutes on this issue. And finally, he said to God, this is all happening in his mind, he said to God, Lord, I don't want to do this. I'm too embarrassed. If you really want me to do this, I I love this. If you really want me to do this, I give you permission to do in me whatever it takes to make me obey you. Sounds like some good words, doesn't it? I give you permission to do whatever it takes in me to make me obey you. And he says the strangest thing happened. He was suddenly filled with an intense hatred of every person in that room. Kind of strange, isn't it? An intense hatred with everyone in that room. Why? Was it because they were being mean to him? Was it because they were laughing at him or calling him in? No, they didn't even know what was going on in his mind. He hated them because he was allowing them to come between him and obeying his God. He was in reality making an idol out of them because he was afraid of them. Because he was allowing them to be above God. And in this God-given hatred that he had, and he he took pains to say, you know, this has happened, I don't know how old he is, but he's retired probably, that this had only happened once, maybe twice in his life. This wasn't a common thing that happened. But he said, in this God-given hatred that he felt toward everybody in this room, He spoke the thing that God asked him to speak. And the minute he was obedient that way, suddenly that hatred was immediately washed away and he was filled with the most wonderful, gentle love for everyone in that room. When I heard that experience, it opened up to me maybe just a little bit more of what Jesus probably meant when he told us to hate the ones we love, including ourselves in order to follow him we're not called to hate people jesus himself contradicts that one of the commandments himself contradicts that when it says honor your father and your mother right obviously jesus didn't necessarily mean that in the way we might automatically think but in this case i think that jesus did mean that we should truly hate anything that stands between us and him including ourselves including ourselves, especially ourselves. Not a cruel kind of hate, I wouldn't think. But the kind of hate that will drive you to put God where he belongs, at the very top of your list. We should hate an idol, shouldn't we? Commandment number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And an idol is anything that we place above God, isn't it? Hate things into their proper place and then love them even hate yourself into your proper place and then love yourself but i have to you know add a word of caution i hesitated even to bring this up because it's so easily abused it's so easy to justify hate and so easy to believe that something is god's will even when it's not there are too many who work for the devil By hating in the name of God. Hating your friends and your colleagues and those you love is not a human kind of hatred any more than loving your enemies is a human kind of love. It's something that comes from God. And if anything, this kind of God-given hatred is the work of just a single moment that causes you to do only one thing, and that is reprioritize God to the top of your list. And then that hatred is erased. By incredible love and gratitude for that same person or object or yourself that you hated for that instant. Momentary hate that reprioritizes God, then it is immediately washed away. So I want to get away from that topic. It scares me, sorry. Another example of Jesus' godly humanness that Luke presents to us in Luke 12:50. Jesus was telling his disciples about his mission on earth, and he confides in them. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. This baptism he referred to, of course, was his crucifixion. It wasn't his literal baptism. He had already been baptized. But in his humanness, Jesus shrank from the ordeal that he knew he had to go through. I get some comfort out of that understanding. God asks us to follow him he doesn't always mean we have to like it. Jesus shrank from what he had to do, but as our example, he pushed forward resolutely to obey his Father's will. God asks us to do hard things sometimes. He asks us to step out in faith. I had recently just somebody that that was struggling in keeping the Sabbath. And he was working a number of times. You know, he had been baptized already, and he confided me. He said, "Pastor, I'm still. Sometimes I'm working." And we talked for a while, and and I shared with him how sometimes God asks us to do hard things. How He asks us to trust Him, and that He's going to take care of us no matter what happened. And I had a call on my answering machine when I got home, <laughs> and he says, "Pastor, I got good news." I called my people. I told them not to come to work today because that's what we're supposed to do. This man had taken God at his word that he's going to take care of him if, if he will obey. God asks us to obey. And Jesus was determined to do that. We'll skip ahead to Luke 19. And Jesus tells his disciples to go get a colt for him. And they go get the colt and he sits on it and they start riding toward Jerusalem. Jesus is riding toward Jerusalem and death well the people around him of course didn't know that they thought he was going to be exalted and honored and and crowned king and they began to praise God Luke nineteen thirty-seven. Luke chapter 19 verse 37 When he came near to the place where the road goes down, to the, down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to, the, said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, this ideal man, this man among men, burst into tears. This must have been awfully strange to the joyful people around him. And Jesus must have felt so alone. Can you imagine going somewhere and somebody thinks you're going to be exalted and and honored and you know you're going to die? But I don't think it was his death that Jesus wept over. Listen to his words there in verse 42. He said, If you, only you, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. He's talking about Jerusalem here. And encircle you and hem you on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus wept for the people who refused to accept it. Jesus wanted so much for people to recognize him for who he was. He was going to accomplish his mission whether they believed in him or not. But he wanted so much for them to repent of their rebellion and believe. But he knew they wouldn't. He saw the future of Jerusalem. He had even warned his disciples about how armies would come and ransack the place, destroy the temple, burn the city. And many would die because they would not hear the warnings that Jesus had brought to them. In the middle of this grand procession to proclaim him king, Jesus' heart broke for the hard-hearted, stubborn people who sang his praises today but who were going to shout crucify him that weekend. Luke gives us just a glimpse that no one else gives us quite the same way of how much God wants us to accept him. But we are as stubborn and as hard-hearted as the people were back then. We sing and we praise and we wave our palm branches, so to speak, on one occasion and then we reject him by going our own way on the next. Jesus didn't just weep for the people who were around him that day. He wept for you and I as well. He wept for those who would not Accept him with all of their hearts. Many of us have accepted him with some of our hearts, but he wants all of our hearts. Those tears continue to call out to you and me today. Won't you recognize who Jesus wants to be in your life? Won't you recognize how much you need him? Won't you recognize him for who he is, your Lord? your savior, your daily teacher for how to live your life day to day as the perfect human being. If you do want him to take control of your life that way, it's so easy to do. All you've got to do is ask him. That's it. Say, Lord, come be Lord of my life. Show me how to surrender to you with all my heart. You know what? He'll do it. He absolutely will do it.
0: Thank you for joining Pastor Jeff Scoggins today for Worship in Spirit and Truth. We would love to hear your thoughts about the program and your financial support is also greatly appreciated so that we can continue bringing you these kinds of programs. Tell your friends they can find the program Spirit and Truth right here on this station. Stay tuned for contact information and more details from your local station to follow. Until next time, keep your mind fixed on Jesus.
1: This is Pastor Jeff Scoggins. Thank you for listening to Spirit and Truth. Often listeners contact me or the station wanting to know how to get a copy of a specific program or more information. All of these programs are archived as podcasts, and many of them are on video as well. You can find relevant links at my website, www.scoggins.biz. You will also find books and Bible study resources there as well. So if you didn't get to hear one of these programs all the way through or missed one in a series, you can find it by visiting scoggins.biz. That's S-C-O-G-G-I-N-S dot B-I-Z.